name of God, creator, redeemer, giver of life. Please be seated. Make my joy, everyone. Happy New Year and the New Year. I hope you take advantage of being in town to celebrate in the forefront. Um, today's Gospel reading from Mark is the last story in Mark's first chapter. And the Gospel of Mark begins with these words. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, and it ends 45 verses later with the telling of today's story. Now Mark's Gospel has a sense of urgency about it. The language, the movement from one episode to another is rapid. Things happen immediately. Jesus goes from healing people that evening at sunset to in the morning while he was while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place where he prayed. In 39 verses to the beginning of our reading today, the Markan narrative is covered. John the Baptist's ministry, Jesus' baptism, Jesus' temptation in the desert, the calling of the first disciples on the shore of Lake Galilee, the visit to the synagogue in Capernaum and the healing of the man with the unclean spirit, the healing of John's mother and the healing ministry that goes on into the night as people from all over the city come to him. The next morning, while it is still dark, Jesus goes out to pray. The disciples wake. They can't find him. They go looking for him and they say, Everyone is searching for you. And Jesus answers, Let us go on to the neighbouring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came to do. And so they go out through Galilee proclaiming the message in the synagogues. Immediately, and then, at once, episode follows episode. In 39 verses and less than 800 words, at the end of this initial intensive burst of activity, we come to today's Gospel reading. You know, often as I prepare a sermon, I will pull up a number of different translations of the scripture that I'm looking at to see um, if the slightly different wordings bring out something to me that I had not previously considered. And this um, scripture, something did jump out at me, something very obvious. Now, last year in August, um, I talked about how I prepare a sermon, a sermon preparation sermon, um, and about how sometimes the rabbit holes open up in front of you and you get dragged off down them. And I think the next sermon, I spent my time chasing Jeremiah um, through Matthew's Gospel because Jeremiah's name is only mentioned three times in the New Testament. It's all in Matthew's Gospel. So anyway, this week, a rabbit hole opened up in front of me, and off I went. Now, I have to start off with a wee bit of explanation for those of you who are visiting. Um, and it's a bit of a hope, it's not too much of a spoiler alert for many of you. Um, but the Bible wasn't written in King James English. <laughs> Hopefully that isn't too contentious. Right? What we use in this church is our normal text, is the uh, New Revised Standard Version. And um, it's a cumulative scholarship of translation into English. And it's translated from the oldest secondary sources that are available. We don't have originals of the books of the Bible. Right? We have different fragments 
of different copies, and in some cases, those um, are dated to the first and second century. And those fragments don't all agree. Sometimes they have different wording in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek. So scholarship in this area involves identifying what wording is more likely to be the earliest, therefore the closest to the original. And that is what gets translated into English. Now sometimes with new discoveries, the weight of evidence swings scholarly opinion from one possible translation to another one. Why am I telling you this? Well, because in today's Gospel reading, when Philippa begs Jesus to heal him, if you choose, you can make me clean, Jesus' response is not that surprising. Moved with pity, Jesus says, I do choose, be made clean. But the motivating emotion that's attributed to Jesus in his response in our translation, moved with pity, is one of those bits of scripture where there is evidence for more than one, there is evidence of more than one possible text to be considered in choosing what to translate into English. And there are a number of ancient fragments where Jesus responds not in compassion or pity, but in anger. And a couple of modern translations have picked up on this. So when I looked at the Gospel um, and the parallel translations, I read our New Revised Standard Version where Jesus is moved with pity. And then in the Common English Bible, uh, sorry, in the New International Bible, it said Jesus was indignant. In the Common English Bible, it said Jesus was incensed. Now what pulled me up here it was not that Jesus could be angry, incensed, outraged, or indignant. Jesus is often, no, that's not fair, Jesus is sometimes a bit testy with folks in the Gospel of Mark. And you will remember in um, Mark chapter 7, he has that encounter with the Syrio-Phoenician woman where Jesus sweetly says to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. And then there's another interaction that Jesus has in Mark 9, where he has quite a long interaction with the father of a boy who is um, having seizures. And the seizures cause him to fall into the fire and actually read Mark 9. And the best possible interpretation you could put upon Jesus' interaction with that father is that he is somewhat abrupt. Now, so I wasn't surprised that Jesus could be indignant, but what interested me was what could it have been in that apparently simple encounter that provoked a reaction in Jesus that was observed as angry or indignant? And can I just say, this is a fantastic alcohol. It's like a 50 minute sermon. <laughs> But don't worry, in our Anglican tradition, duration is almost as important as content. <laughs> <laughs> However, there's a door prize, there's 12 double-sided pages here of an article that I found really fascinating. And it's entitled, Why Did the Leper Get Under Jesus' Skin? Emotion Theory and Angry Reaction 
and Mark, check the one 40 to 45. We've got a couple of copies if you want. <laughs> oh my gosh, who knew there were so many ways to be angry? <laughs> it's really good, I didn't know about myself, so I've got a copy of it. I've got, I've got two copies, at 8 o'clock, I just didn't want to know about I'm angry. Um, but if you want to know, we can always make another one. But anyway, anyway, um, what could it be? Where rejection or 
condemnation has eroded someone's perception of the universal nature of God's love, the inclusive nature of God's love. Where people have doubt that they could be loved by God, where their experience has been coloured by judgment, condemnation and isolation. This scripture tells me that we must proclaim otherwise. It's important. Jesus could have healed him just to get fine hope. But Jesus was upset because he thought that he didn't remind him that God might not want to engage. That God might not love him enough to And seems angry. You know, in our people, don't knock it up, we'll say at some point during here. Um, on page 481 is an affirmation of faith. It's a special affirmation of faith because it's ours. By that I mean Anglican Church in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And um, it was our attempt to frame in late 20th century language how we perceive the nature of God to be. And it describes the attributes of God like this. It says, you, O God, are infinitely generous, good beyond all measure. And then it includes words that speak of our belief and the intention of God to be near us and to be with us. It says, you came to us before we came to you. And the affirmation goes on in the end to challenge us. It says, you, God, empower us to be your gospel in the world. You reconcile and heal. You overcome death. You are our God. We worship you. Being the gospel in the world is a call to proclaim in both word and action the reality of God, of who God is infinitely generous, good beyond all measure, came to us before we went to God. There's a productivity of reaching out. A God who reconciles and heals. That's the call. Where people doubt that God is love. Where belief and the universal inclusiveness of that love has been eroded. We have the responsibility as church, as the gospel in the world, to proclaim that that is not wrong, that God is love, and that that love is for everyone.